So I'd like to invite the elder of our community to come up and say a blessing for us. Let's see, who is our elder? I've been communing with the big tree out there. Who, or is it that, that way? That way. <laughs> Whom I'm sure is way older than me. <laughs> and has a lot of wisdom about aging and loss and damage and surviving in windstorms. So my blessing is to our ancestors, including our three ancestors and our descendants, may we enjoy the healing, enjoy the healing. I also wanted to start by acknowledging the beautiful, wholesome qualities in our community because I wanted to talk about the cultivation of the wholesome and the abandoning and the abandoning of the unwholesome. And as I was thinking about it, uh, you all came to my mind. Just those of you who have been on the Lotus Sisters Steering Committee, those of you who are, those of you who support Lotus Sisters, the many, many hours of work, of generosity, of the expression of your practice in wholesome action and speech. Those of you who are part of the Awakening Heart Sangha in Portland and the open drop-in sitting group in Portland, and all the effort and time and commitment and energy you have um, um, brought forth as an expression of your practice. And so it's just such a simple way of saying uh, practice counts, that our practice is visible in this room, not only because the retreat is in existence, but in the particular way it is, the recording and the food coordination and the registration and all that generosity, it, I just feel so appreciative <coughs> of it and of the acknowledgement of it as um, a mirror for us in reflecting on why practice and how practice contributes to the well-being of communities, to the sustaining of the Dharma and the support of our path. It's just really beautiful. So, thank you. I don't think, in some way, I think all of you, all of you are, have been part of one Sangha or another from all over. Barbara in New York, she was part of a Sangha in New York and now in Santa Fe. Nancy in Montana. I mean, we're all, we're just all that generosity.
here's um, an another expression of wholesomeness I, I wanted to uh, read. Um, it touches me because this is about a soldier, and um, an American soldier. And uh, you all probably know what that culture is like already, so I don't have to say anything. I heard, I heard um, about the soldier um, who was training every day to win a race in the community where he was stationed. And he trained every day for weeks before a local race. There, I know in Northampton, every year we had a local race where you ran five miles. and. Everyone participated, families, kids, and then, of course, runners as well. So the soldier was training, and he was training because he really wanted to win by running with a big backpack of rocks. He wanted to strengthen his muscles enough that he was going to win. <coughs> so on the day of the race, you know, there was like, as the beginning of most races, there were sort of kids and parents and, you know, teenagers on the side and it was like a big mass of people and the whistle went or the flag or whatever it was and people started running and it was actually a couple of loops around the town and so unsurprisingly the soldier moves to the front and he runs the first loop and he notices a family running to perhaps a man and woman and a young boy. And um, as he loops around on the second run, he sees the young boy in the middle of the track crying. And he stops and asks the young boy, what's the matter? And the young boy is upset because he lost connection with his parents. He can't find them anywhere. And the soldier says, as everyone is passing him, well, let's run together. And so he paces himself to the young boy, and they run to the finish line. When the Buddha talks about the Dharma as the cultivation of beautiful qualities, as the cultivation of wholesome qualities, he does so because it makes such a difference. Not only in the sort of narrow confines of our practice, but in happenstance circumstances, as well as in all other circumstances. So, and then I wanted to, um, I wanted to acknowledge a couple of other beautiful expressions of wholesome quality. This is from Patricia Colors from Black Lives Matter. We are committed to being self-embracing, reflexive, and doing the work required to dismantle cisgendered privilege and uplifting black trans persons. There's hardly been a political movement around civil rights or liberation that has had right up front a commitment 
to looking at cis gender privilege and to supporting trans people and particularly black trans people. <coughs> it's such a beautiful expression of a wholesome mind. Just very moving to me, that inclusive, that inclusive caring. And then I actually, um, um, and, and this is uh, this is from a, a very young um, African American um, woman, Ellie Hearn. She says, "I'm a black trans woman, learning more and more about myself each day." Just, just beautiful expressions of wholesome qualities in the mind. And then I found my Leslie Feinberg one. <laughs> it's a beauty one isn't born with, but must fight to construct at great sacrifice. The beauty of being trans. That's so beautiful. Struggle that, in a way, those especially for those of us who are older, you know, uh, when we grew up feeling different, and the ways we, you know, navigated how to construct our own beauty in a culture that didn't reflect it back to us. You know, those beautiful, wholesome mind states that are living inside of each one of us as we came out in the ways we came out. Acknowledging the beautiful, wholesome states that are living inside of us and in our community. that wholesome states bring happiness and unwholesome states bring suffering. The Buddha names it that way, that the reason we want to cultivate wholesome states is because they will bring us happiness and freedom, the conditions for awakening and liberation. And the reason to abandon the unwholesome states is because they bring us suffering. So just as simple as that. And so all through the teachings in different ways, in different places, the Buddha comes back to this teaching over and over again. So yesterday evening I talked about the Eightfold Path. And in really every link of the Eightfold Path, that's the theme running through it. Abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome. He says it directly in right effort. And he says, I wouldn't ask you to abandon the unwholesome if I thought you couldn't. I wouldn't ask you to abandon the unwholesome if I thought it would bring you suffering. But I'm asking you to abandon the unwholesome because it will bring you happiness. And I wouldn't ask you to cultivate the wholesome if I didn't think you could do it. And I wouldn't ask you to cultivate the 
wholesome if I didn't think it, if I thought it would bring you suffering. But cultivating the wholesome brings you happiness, and that's why I'm asking you to cultivate it. Not only to cultivate it, but to sustain the conditions that bring about the wholesome qualities of mind. So, abandoning the unwholesome and sustaining the abandoning of it, of those energies, and cultivating the wholesome and sustaining the cultivation of the wholesome, sustaining the wholesome when they arise in the mind. That's right effort. And of course, we need mindfulness in order to see what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So they're immediately linked together. And then, of course, we need concentration, even if, I don't want to say even, the, um, at least at the momentary level, because unless there's some kind of stability in the mind, we can't see clearly. So that's immediately how all three of the last three links of the Eightfold Path work. But then I wanted to go into the nature of consciousness. I know some of you have heard it, but I think it really bears repeating over and over again because it's such a beautiful framework to see how consciousness arises and where the wholesome and the unwholesome come in and how they work. So, Oh, oh. Can you see? I brought the. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it went out. Mm-hmm. So, um, brat, because I didn't bring the whole list, but I think I can remember. I think. Oh no, I did. Yes. Oh, thanks. That's lovely. So. Languaging is so tricky sometimes because we use the relative language description when really what we want to say is that um, wisdom, mindfulness and wisdom, because they work together, they don't work separately, wisdom infuses mindfulness and there's a, um, and mindfulness infuses wisdom and they work together, especially in the five um, powers. Um, So it's wisdom that cultivates the wholesome, you know? And just to be clear that there isn't an I that's doing it, it's wisdom that's doing it. So anyway, this is what's going on. There are thousands of moments of consciousness in each second, triggered by contact with one of the sense spaces. That's what's happening. And I'm getting warm, which is lovely. (laughs) Thank you for being willing to be warm with me, Terry. I see you're stripping down. Thank you. (laughs) 
So in each moment of consciousness, there are seven universals. Some of you have heard me talk about this. Do you remember what they are? Some of you haven't heard me talk about it. Do you know what they are? Directly, but the elements are part of the five aggregates. So, good, good guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> so hmm? single-pointedness. Yes, that's one. One. Yeah, excellent. So, so what I've already said, contact. In each moment of consciousness, there's always contact with the sense base, right? And then, immediately after contact is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Immediately after is the flavoring, and it's called a flavoring because it flavors consciousness with the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's why the Buddha talks about it so much all the time, to notice, right? Because it's there all the time. It's never not there. Isn't that so amazing to understand. And then, and then it's, I mean, I'm talking about it in a linear way, but they co-arise together. There's perception. This kind of perception is sort of like the capacity that um, the mind has through memory um, and first education and then memory that marks something and then recognizes it. So if I see a person with breasts and long hair, for example, woman, that's perception, right? So it's that first initial perceiving of an object and through particular <coughs> markings that object has. So perception. And then volition always an intention, conscious, unconscious, in every moment of consciousness, right? So then volition, then su, one-pointedness, that is an in, that very fundamental, not sophisticated and practiced one-pointedness of right concentration, but just that the mind has the capacity in each moment of consciousness to make contact, that's the one-pointedness, to make that contact with um, uh, one of the sense bases, with a visual object, for example. Then there's life faculty, the energy of the life faculty, and a very basic attention. That's happening in every moment of consciousness. There's some variables that I'm not going to go into. And then there are the uh, the 14 unwholesome qualities and the 52 wholesome ones. <laughs> so, just to say that every moment when there is an unwholesome quality, there cannot be a wholesome one. And every consciousness that has a beautiful quality cannot have an unwholesome one. They're mutually exclusive. So sometimes, and just to be really particular, when we say meet your anger with love, we're saying interrupt the flow of consciousness that has anger in it 
with a wholesome mind state because they aren't co they don't co-arise together and that makes sense they couldn't because they're conflicting mental factors so let's um, let's name the unwholesome ones first because they're fewer so um, there's delusion shamelessness fearlessness of wrongdoing restlessness greed wrong view conceit hatred envy avarice worry sloth torpor and doubt there i we know there are more but i think the buddha is, is why he chose these i don't know but that's why he did some are the hindrances right you recognize them as the hindrances the uh, um, worry sloth torpor and doubt in every moment that has an unwholesome energy in it there is always delusion that is there's always wrong view so whenever there's anger or desire or fear or anxiety or doubt or hopelessness or despair or depression whenever there are any of these there is always in that moment of consciousness delusion shamelessness that is there's no concern about um harming there's no concern of wrongdoing fearlessness of wrongdoing and there's always restlessness that is that the mind can't penetrate because it's restless so it can't see clearly so that has given me so much support it has been so lovely I'm touching something maybe I'll move this. It has been so lovely for me to backtrack. As I say when I walk into the kitchen almost every time just I come back from a retreat and there's this moment of aversion. <laughs> and I know because I I chant this as a mantra to myself sometimes. that i am in delusion that in that moment of consciousness my perception is distorted and i'm not seeing things as they truly are and i'm like how can i not be seeing things truly as they are because look there all the dishes in the sink but i know i'm not because i really have faith in the buddha's teaching And so then it's like so arena you have to drop the uh, aversion even though you think you are seeing it truly you're not because there's aversion so somehow you're seeing it in a distorted way It's clearer when it's other people <laughs> <laughs> So I think of something really clear. Do you remember the policeman who killed Michael Brown and he said 
that Michael Brown appeared as Hogan Hulk, like a monster. Yeah. That was his perception. That was his, he, that's how he saw, that was the distorted perception with delusion there, with shamelessness, with restlessness, no capacity to see, to drop down and see clearly. And that's why he pulled the gun. Not like, I don't, we do the same thing. Our mind is doing the same thing as that. We happen not to have been conditioned in that culture as police people. But just to, and, and because it's someone else, so it's clearer. But we're doing the same thing. We are misperceiving every time there are any of the unwholesome factors. So let me just read them again. Because this is such a beautiful way of abandoning them, is to come back to the understanding and the commitment, this is delusion and ignorance, and so I'm not seeing it clearly. <coughs> there is one other example that is that just so, um, you know, that it, it's such a testimony to how we can, through attachment to views and opinions, get caught in um, acting out unwholesome energies. And that is one of the men who killed a doctor because he um, uh, aborted fetuses at Planned Parenthood, mm -hmm. uh, Planned Parenthood organization. Mm -hmm. And he, he was um, uh, tried, and he said, I'm not one bit sorry, and I would do it again because I'm saving unborn fetuses. He believed profoundly and deeply that what he had done was the right thing to do. Because in those consecutive mind moments, all there was was delusion, shamelessness of, of doing wrong, fearlessness of doing wrong, and restlessness. <coughs> and hatred, and aversion, and, um, yeah. When we name it that way, we can see how radical, how liberationist mindfulness is, because it is the only intervention when you see it. If you don't see it, there's no intervention. There's no way to begin to purify ourselves unless we intervene with mindfulness. So I know, you know, some of you have said, oh my God, this is such a slog. You know, my mind is so distracted or I don't even know what's going on. Why it makes sense to keep on slogging at it? Because there's no other savior. Other than that, that's the savior. So, the unwholesome faculties. I just want to uh, read the traditional definition of delusion. I love it. It is um, synonymous with ignorance, and its characteristic is mental blindness or unknowing. 
Its function is non-penetration or concealment of the real nature of the object. So that's what's happening. When I look at those dishes, there's mental blindness and unknowing. <laughs> of non-penetration and concealment of the real nature. <coughs> That's so great. Okay. Shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing are, um, um, are defined as the characteristic that is absence of disgust at bodily and verbal misconduct. It's moral recklessness and the absence of dread on account of such misconduct. And so the Buddha says, when um, you know, when know, you know that you're going to say something that's unskillful. Example, that's something that we all are involved with, right? Right speech is so hard, and let's say we're like just like like kind of gossiping and, and just saying something negative about someone else. Do you, do you have that kind of moment that you like know you shouldn't be doing it even though you are? You know, the Buddha says that's so great <laughs> because it's actually a wholesome quality to feel dread, even a little bit of doing something wrong because it's some sense of, a, of morality. And then um, I wanted to read uh, Greed, the first unwholesome root, and covers all degrees of selfish desire, longing, attachment, and clinging. And its characteristic is grasping an object, hence the coconut. And its function is sticking as they really love meat. It's sticking as meat sticks to a hot pan. And it is manifested as not giving up. Its proximate cause is seeing enjoyment in things that lead to bondage. Um, you know, I just wanted to, because um, it's so easy, um, it's so easy especially when we've been in target groups, you know, and we move as part of a way to navigate oppression, to create conditions of enjoyment for ourselves. I just want to say again that there's nothing wrong with enjoying ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with actually intentionally creating conditions for joy vacation, lovely dinners, but just to know that that isn't the path of deep healing and liberation. That's a nice, that's a nice break. That's a nice ordinary happiness and there isn't anything wrong with it, but that there is something deeper and not to get stuck there. And that's so important because in our culture, when the Dharma isn't reflected everywhere, it's easy to get seduced into thinking that our lives are about pleasant experiences. 
And because we are in privileged locations, we have that opportunity to create them. So just to say that. So that's why the Achincha, um, the Achincha example was so beautiful about seeing it's impermanent. And the thing why I'm going into it, you know, going into this, is that in a moment of desire, perception, how we're seeing the object, is always distorted, right? Because there's ignorance there. But there's a particular distortion around desire, and it sees only the positive qualities of something. That's why this definition says it doesn't see the drawbacks. That desire only sees what's attractive, and it only sees, and it sees it as permanent. So when we want something, in that moment, it, there's a sense that it's going to satisfy us through time. Isn't it? <laughs> like a chocolate cake. Yeah, like a chocolate cake, <laughs> exactly. Mm. Yeah. So whenever there's desire, then the distortion is that we're only seeing what's positive and we're seeing it only as permanent. And that we don't see the suffering in meeting the desire. Not that, that, not that enjoyment is bad in itself, but that we get caught then, once we've met that desire, in wanting more. Because desire is strengthened in the mind. And then again, and again, and again. And so desire gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But not that in itself enjoying things is bad, it isn't. So, that's desire. And then let me, I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, because I want to get to the universal factors. You can tell I'm the aversive type. Look at how much I'm enjoying reading the unwholesome energies. I just love it. <laughs> so, um, uh, let me just read a couple. Conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness, and its function is self-exaltation. It's manifested as vainglory, and its proximate cause is greed dissociated from views. I don't know what that means. It should be regarded as madness. What? Madness. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know, through the different stages of enlightenment, different ones of these unwholesome energies become purified. Conceit is the last to be purified. Too bad. Yeah. And it's um, because because you think you're so good, I mean, just in plain English, you just think you're cool. You know, there's that sense of, uh, I'm cool, I'm good, you know, so nothing can touch me. So it's hard to purify. It's not the conceit also that I, I am so bad. It's, it's not that. No, no, oh, that's that not considered conceit. Hmm. It's only when you think you're cool. And... Um, 
people with greedy personalities tend, of course, to have conceit. And so it's, you know, it's said that having an aversive personality um, is more dangerous because aversion can bring about harm. But it's easier to purify because it's so obvious that it brings suffering. Mm. And having a greedy personality is um, um, uh, less harmful but more difficult to purify because it's pleasant and there's conceit with it. Because mm. you only see what's good about yourself. So. <laughs> So anyway, okay. So let's go on to the beautiful factors. So when when um, when the beautiful factors arise in consciousness, first there's faith, then mindfulness, shame and fear of wrongdoing, non-greed or generosity, but bigger than generosity non-hatred, loving-kindness, and, um, and all that is part of that, neutrality of mind, tranquility of the mental body, tranquility of consciousness, so the calming of the mind, lightness, you know, so as we deepen in practice, the mind becomes tranquil, light, and then malleable, and wieldy, uh, proficient, and rectitude of consciousness. So some of them are factors that happen as the mind becomes um, uh, <coughs> permeated with practice. And, um, and then there is um, the three abstinences, and they're part of the wholesome qualities. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the two immeasurables, um, karuna and mudita, compassion and joy. And lastly, wisdom, the factor of wisdom. They, they are all um, um, the uh, wholesome mental factors. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood are called virati, and they um, are described as abstinences. We're abstaining from the wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. So I wanted to read the definition of faith because, um, as I said, it's part of every wholesome mental factor, just like ignorance or um, delusion are part of, their, of every unwholesome factor. Faith is part of every wholesome one. And it has the characteristic of trusting. Its function is to clarify as a water-clearing gem causes muddy water to become clear. And um, that's there's more, but um, I, I didn't bring it with me. It's considered the hand that grasps the profitable, and also that it's, it's the boat that takes us across the shore. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
something you said before clarifying there was one other word. Gem. It's yeah, it's a gem, like a clarifying gem. So, um, so then I just wanted to mention the different groupings. I, I know it's a lot. I know my Dharma talks have been going on a lot. I, I, I won't go on too much longer. Five more minutes, okay? Could you say what the title of that whole thing is? That you, how you refer the to wholesome it? mental factors and the unwholesome ones. That's Before that, when you... Uh, consciousness, the nature of consciousness. You asked if anybody knew what any of the oh oh the 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 one the factors that are always present in every moment of consciousness. The so seven factors that are always present in every moment of consciousness, and they're called the seven universals. So then, I just wanted to name the different gateways to cultivating the beautiful qualities. So, um, there, so we have the list of the 52, and we can use that as a gateway. You know, just intentionally begin to take each one and cultivate them. And then, of course, there is the, um, the five great controlling faculties. Some teachers talk about the five, the five controlling faculties a lot because it's said that when they're strong, they control the mind and they don't let any of the unwholesome qualities come into the mind. And so, um, do you know what they are? No. <laughs> Okay, they are faith, um, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And together, they are called the five great powers and the five controlling faculties. In each of the groupings, the particular way these factors function is a little different. And the one that makes, uh, the one that, the, the five faculties are particularly beautiful because of the way they work in tandem with each other. So, um, so for example, when, um, f when mindfulness is talked about in, um, in some traditions, it's the mindfulness described in the five controlling faculties, not in the, um, the four foundations, because that mindfulness is in relationship to wisdom in a particular way in the controlling faculties. And um, just try to remember. Um, You know, so the Buddha doesn't talk about it explicitly, but in relationship to wisdom, but in the four foundations of mindfulness, the refrain of, of noticing things, of noticing the different um, uh, areas of our experience with mindfulness, the refrain is notice the arising and the passing. 
So when we, when mindfulness, when we cultivate mindfulness, and we place it in the environment of the controlling faculties, we're placing it in the environment of wisdom. So always there's that mindfulness to the arising and the passing, to the three characteristics, the arising and passing on phenomena. There, it's in the environment and we see things placed in that environment that things are always impermanent and changing. That, that the change makes it unsatisfactory and that there is no solid eye, that everything is conditioned. So the mindfulness is, is heightened to those relationships and seeing those relationships. So cultivating the beautiful qualities and the great powers, and then cultivating the beautiful qualities of the seven factors of enlightenment. So mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, right? Generosity, tranquility. Tranquility, calm tranquility uh, or uh, concentration, tranquility or calm, concentration and equanimity. Um, those beautiful factors, I'll talk about equanimity tomorrow. That one of the, um, and I want to just point one in particular that we've been doing over and over again, but there's several ways to cultivate joy. We talked about that in our group sharing, right? One is through mindfulness, the joy that comes from the direct contact of awareness with whatever object, when it's direct. When that, when in that moment of consciousness where they know of the unwholesome factors, in the contact there's always joy. Just, I won't say just, in the knowing of sensation, there's joy. When that contact doesn't have any greed, hatred, and delusion in it. That's one joy that arises. Another joy that arises is through the concentration practice. The third joy that arises is through the contemplation practice of contemplating your virtue, contemplating your generosity, contemplating the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha contemplating other great teachers. So if you want to, traditionally, if you want to cultivate joy as a wholesome factor, and it's a really lovely wholesome factor to cultivate, especially when you're feeling a little hopeless in your practice because you're working with, um, you're in the purification process um, and healing what's been, what is difficult. Um, intentionally cultivating joy is a really traditional and wonderful antidote. And that is to look at how you are living within the precepts. It's a really lovely practice of just thinking about how you refrain from harming in your life. And then contemplating acts of generosity. And the Buddha says, if there was one act that particularly you feel proud of, kind of, you know, like it really lives with you, 
then you get to think about the same one over and over again. You don't have to even come up with a new one. He said that in one of the suttas. I thought that was so great. So, um, oh, I did this, this just came up. It's so funny, I'll share it with you. So, um, the girlfriend I had before my last girlfriend, I sort of have been in three sort of committed relationships or marriages. And after we broke up, we didn't break up, we, though, after the relationship ended, um, she went through a period of like 20 years <laughs> of really, you know, of, of like just seeing me as the terrible person. Like I was the demon in the relationship and, and I was the person at fault. And, and because she was a lover, I just, I mean, and we spent seven years together and we lived together. I, I practiced generosity of sustaining our connection through her judgmentalness for 20 years. And I can say that because it's finally changed. <laughs> she sees me differently now. That generosity of just building, just building good conditions, building good conditions, mm. building good conditions. And then we just get to appreciate it so much. Mm. When it bears fruit, it's so lovely. So you get to you get to contemplate your own commitment of trying to build and sustain some of those long term relationships, you know. And you just get to enjoy it. And as you feel joy, then you turn towards the joy. And you just keep the joy as your focus. And then when the joy begins to wane, you go back to the contemplation again. And you feel that joy. And then you, you turn towards it and you sustain it. So um, remember the monastery I said I lived at for a year in Australia that only did samadhi practice? We were doing that. We were doing those contemplations. So, um, let's see if do I. Um, I have. Um, well, I know this is like this is what the Buddha said to his son, which you know, it's kind of beautiful. I mean, it's what we're talking about. But I imagine you know the Buddha. This is when Rahula was 12 years old, you know, so, you know, a father talking to his son. Uh, so Rahula gets a little bit of special energy. What do you think, the Buddha says to Rahula, what is a mirror for? And Rahula says, for reflection, sir, the Buddha. In the same way, Rahula, bodily acts, verbal acts and mental acts, are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to perform a bodily act, you should reflect on it. This bodily act I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? 
If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction <coughs> of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily act with happy consequences, happy results, then any bodily act of that sort is fit for you to do. Similarly with verbal acts and mental acts. <coughs> While you are performing a bodily act, you should reflect this bodily act I'm doing <coughs> Is it leading to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? And if on reflection you know that it is leading to self-affliction, to affliction of others or both, you should give it up. And then similarly with verbal acts and mental acts with thoughts. Having performed the bodily act, you should reflect on. <laughs> you should reflect on. It did this lead to self-affliction? <coughs> Rahula, all the contemplatives in the course of the past who purified their bodily acts, verbal acts and mental acts, did it through repeated reflection. And so, Rahula, you should train yourself. I will purify my bodily acts through repeated reflection. I will purify my verbal acts through repeated reflection. And I will purify my mental acts through repeated reflection. This is what the Blessed One said, gratified, Brahula delighted in the Blessed One's words. Isn't that an amazing vision and invitation to contemplate so much on our thinking about uh, um, um, something, um, doing something, saying something, just reflecting? Is this leading to well-being or is it leading to suffering? Is it leading to affliction? And then after having done it, kind of care. It just is such a beautiful vision of what happens when we slow the mind down. To you know, when we think about how we want to transform our relationships and build equity, really the basis has to be through this kind of care. So may we May we take the time to contemplate our thoughts, our actions, our speech, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome qualities, whether what we're doing or saying or thinking will bring well-being or injustice, whether it brings harm or healing. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for your listening.